So as you had read there, um, where we pick up this time, a week or so removed, as Dan mentioned last week, the um, loves, uh, new friends and ministry partners of ours were here last Sunday um, and explaining their mission uh, and their work coming up in Ethiopia. So we missed last week from uh, Genesis uh, dealing with the Noah narrative. So we pick up this morning, however, to recall just briefly, if you look at verses 1 through 5, What we see there is, again, where the text shifts in verse 1, but God remembered Noah. Um, Because if you look previous, just I won't keep going back up to another layer yet, but you see that at the the final comment of chapter 7, as we move to the Noah narrative, is only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days, um, but God remembered Noah. And all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And um, the evidence of God's having remembered Noah uh, during this long period of 150 days of the waters prevailing. So you have 40 days and 40 nights, this, this deluge event where it's described that rivers were falling from the skies. So you have not like a kind of a rainstorm beginning, but you have a deluge of, of uh of humidity, of, of water in the air that then just begins to overwhelm. Um, then you have the great opening of water that is down in sediment and rock and the, the, the earth giving way to large amounts of water that began to rise. So between the two, everything is devastated over a period of 40 days and 40 nights. And then at which point Noah and his family on the ark are set to sail for 150 more days of water that continues to prevail, meaning water's continuing to rise. Um, It's a long duration of time to be on an ark. Um, Whether we know, which I I don't think we do, perhaps you're of a stronger opinion than myself, of, of, of what was going on on the ark as far as animal life. And were they in some form of hibernation um, by uh, a straight act of miracle? Were they alive? How much food was taken? For how long were they alive? Yes, alive. Awake. For how long were they awake? And so on and so forth. Uh, um, Either which way, uh, it is a long, long time to be in what is otherwise like a coffin with animate life and your family. You notice, and we'll see in the text in a few moments, where there's a hatch on the top that was there. Again, I'm not exactly sure why the hatch would have been there on the top. That is what the text refers to as a window. Um, If it was for navigational points, uh, to be able to kind of get an idea of where he's located by star, I'm not exactly sure. But then there's a door, and then there's there's an open hatch. He opens the hatch in our text this morning. Again, you have to recall the reality of the situation. Uh, Noah didn't take a team of navigational members, uh, uh, oceanic men, that like somehow could go with him and help him navigate and know exactly where they were or what the coordinates were, so on and so forth. Uh, they're, 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 they're restricted in an ark, um, and it's lasting a long time. And there's no revelation coming to Noah during this period of time either. You, you really need to slow down and appreciate it. And I'll try not to slow down too much for you, but you have to slow down to, to recognize how these texts 
are written. Because it's, it is a, a firm conviction of mine, whether we're in a narrative story in the Gospels, as we handle Luke for the last couple of years, or we're here in the Old Testament in any number of narratival texts. Please uh, share that burden with me as good readers and as listeners. Um, that it's not, again, just that the story is being told, but it is how the stories are being told that also matter. And we'll get to more of that in just a moment. But if we pick up with Noah, where is he at but resting in God? He is on the ark at rest, having been remembered. What is the assurance of his having been remembered at this point? Again, no verbal affirmations of Noah and his family at this point. Days are going by with no verbal words from God. But there's a drying wind. You notice the providence, the act of God that he sends. God made, in there in verse 1, God made a wind blow over the earth. That is his act of remembrance to Noah. And the result of this wind that is blowing directly cast from God is that the waters begin to subside. And so where we'll be at this morning in our text is when he opens the window in verse 6. So Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made. Remember, if you're considering at this point the wind is blowing across and the rocks are not exposed, but if you've ever been on a boat or a pontoon, you've been afloat a, a a, in a lake, you can kind of come across sandy regions where you can almost feel your boat kind of drag on the bottom. Um, maybe it's uh, more so if you've gone rafting. Maybe that makes more sense. Or canoeing, and you're unfortunate to find a river that's not running very well. And you are stopping where you wish to be moving. And it's scraping across the bottom. And it, you're heavy enough to kind of make it stay there. Now, it's not dry land around you, mind you. Um, and yet your boat is otherwise breached on that, on that rock facing or on that ground. And that's essentially what we have here with Noah. The, the land is not exposed, but the ark has come to rest, as the text says, um, up here in verse 3. And the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the water abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Now, if we were to consider the Mount Ararat, uh, the term Ararat itself, and then kind of its region that it's mostly identified with in etymology, it's identified with what I assume many of you probably have known just by popular media, is it's um, identified with the mountainous regions of uh, what is now Armenia or eastern Turkey. Um, if you look, however, at any kind of pictures um, from that area of Mount Ararat, uh, don't, you, you'll, you'll be quickly moved from the wrongful assumption that it's a singular mountain and that therefore we now know where exploration needs to take place to go find the remnants of the ark. But rather, it's a vast mountainous region. So all that to say, do we know where the ark is? The answer is no. Now, again, you have a whole um, subculture of people who are dedicated ark hunters, 
And they claim that I think that uh, as recent as 2017, maybe I think I think it was in 2017. Again, maybe you could correct me on that. I'm not exactly certain of this, but I believe that it was the last uh, strong uh, uh, identification with the Ark or the remnants of the Ark by carbon dating were located somewhere in 2017, and then published their findings in 2018. Um, but again, many just simply say this is impossible to know. But they say that they have identified remnants of wood that would give way to the idea of an ark-like structure. The reality is, here or there, however the dating is, um, we just don't know where the ark rested. It's a vast mountain region. But as we mentioned, that's not the point of the geography, to tell us where we need to go digging and where we need to find the ark in order to bolster our faith. Receive by faith the word of the Lord. Whether we can go and dig and find and carbon date certain beams of wood or not. And that's not the point of the story that we would do so. Go find it. Rather, the drama of the text meets our human condition. Again, what is that drama? And I want to draw your attention to it for a few moments this morning. But just by introduction, recall that after the ark has come to rest upon the mountains. So here you are in verse 4. The ark has come to rest, kind of like your canoe. But the water is dark, vast, so it's quite a bit deeper. But that same idea, it's not dry land around you, but you've come to kind of ridge upon something. After the, the ark has come to rest upon the mountains, this is what we need to key in on. This is what we need to learn from this text. Noah and his family had to remain in the ark for an additional two and a half months or so. You see, this is important for our learning and instruction in this text about the human condition, about God's provision, about his peace. That before exiting the ark, there was a period where the ark was not moving. And yet they had to wait another two and a half months before exiting on sufficiently dry ground. Keep that in mind as we move forward. But notice with me in verse 7, it tells us the method that Noah took to determine if the land was sufficiently dry to exit or not. Because he didn't know how long he'd have to rest upon the ark. So notice he undertakes uh, to find out if the land is dry, if it's sufficiently dry. Look at verse 6 with me. We'll look through verse 6 through 8 at the end of 40 days. So you're adding up the information from verse 4, and you're going through the text in the 10th month, and the 10th month, and the first day of the month, and the tops of the mountains were seen. So, so, that, so, it's, so it's, it's, it's breached onto the mountain. And then at the end of 40 days, you're adding that up, it's roughly two and a half months, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made. And he sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then, at some point later, he sent forth a dove to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. Now, it seems that if we are thinking of the text, that most, uh, that most commentators seem to be agreed that there are different goals for each deployment. So when Noah opens the hatch, the window hatch, not knowing to be able to simply see over what is the condition of the water, what is the condition of the land, so he opens a hatch and then he releases bird number one, which is the raven. 
because it has, he has a different goal in mind of learning something or gaining intel from the raven so that the ordering of the two birds is appropriate. Firstly, consider with me the release of the raven. Why would, he, why would it be a raven in the text? Or what's going on with this choice bird to send out of the hatch in order to gain intel? Well, it is, seems to be that the inference is this. Ravens are generally scavengers. What would we learn by sending out a raven? What would Noah, what was the intel that he might gather by sending a raven out? Well, perhaps as a scavenger, Noah sends the raven out in hopes that it will stop at an exposed carcass revealed by the drying mountaintops. So perhaps that is the effort of sending out a raven. Interestingly, as we said, Noah did not take a group of navigators with him or oceanic men that knew how to maneuver or knew how to look for land when they were at sea. But if you travel through history, you see even as recent as the Vikings... Historically documented is they use ravens, went out to sea in order to find land that was within, uh, uh, with beyond eye, beyond view, but somewhere in the distance nearby. So they would send out a raven. If the raven didn't return, then that meant that there was land nearby. Perhaps it is between the distinction of the raven and the dove, the, perhaps the purpose is the scavenging. Noah can send out a raven in hopes that it will stop at an exposed carcass and thereby reveal that the mountaintops are beginning to be seen. Now, if you work through the text, if the bird returned to Noah or not, it's hard to say. Notice with me, if it just a pure reading of the text, he sent out a raven. It went to and fro. Uh, and, and you're like, to and fro to where? Until the waters were dried up from the earth. Did the raven return or not? Is like I said, somewhat hard to say. Uh, To and fro could mean from mountaintop to mountaintop. Or it could mean out to explore some land and to and fro back into the ark. It's just uncertain. Calvin makes a comment that the raven was just simply dumb. And that it went out and then it circled around and then it returned. It didn't do the work necessary. So then he added the dove. That's kind of his idea. It just was too dumb. It just flew around. Come on, just forget it. Come back. And I'm going to send out the dove. It's hard to say. Um, I'm inclined to think that it did return. I I think you'd share that idea as well. If we think about it just from a different angle, did the raven go to and fro, out to check and then come back? And the to is to check and the fro is coming back to the ark. It seems so, because there are only two ravens taken. Remember, for preservation purposes, the raven came in a pair because the raven is unclean. So it wouldn't be used in another sacrificial manner. So for preservation's sake, if there is a raven unit, if, there ra- if the raven is to con- continue, it needed a pair. Otherwise, there'd be no ravens. So it seems to be... By that calculus, the raven went to and fro and came back into the ark. But whichever is the case, Noah progresses. Whether it's the raven just simply got confused or was too dumb, which seems to be a poor analysis from Calvin. They're incredibly intelligent birds. But whichever way we have it, 
It didn't find the carcass, perhaps remains that Noah had hoped. It came back, and then what he does is he sends out a dove. Notice verse 8 with me. Then he sent, so sometime after the raven episode, Noah sent forth a dove to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. So the language is a little bit different, meaning he's looking perhaps in the lower lying areas, and that's the purpose for sending a dove. Because think about the species, the two different birds. Unlike the raven, the dove is not a scavenger. So what would be the purpose of sending out a bird that is not a scavenger? He releases it to determine if the lower-lying areas had become habitable. Again, he's looking out of a hatch. Bird one came back. All right. It doesn't seem to be anything. Sometime later, let's send a dove. For what? A different type of analysis to see if the lower-lying areas were habitable space. In other words... Is the water subsiding from the face of the ground? Why is Noah so concerned? Well, think about it. Again, we need to recognize each pass of the text. Noah's been waiting a very long time to get out of the ark. To know that indeed God is with him. Mercy is attending his path. A day of deliverance is upon him. The ark has been stopped, but the waters continue. Noah's question is, have the water subsided from the face of the ground? Initially, the answer is, look with me in verse 9, the answer initially is no. And jump to verse 8 just momentarily with me. After episode one with the raven, episode two, he sent the dove forth to see if the waters have subsided from the face of the ground. Now imagine being Noah. But the dove found no place to set her foot. And she returned to him to the ark. For the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So what becomes of Noah in this moment? Noah continues to wait. Proverbs 13, um, 13, 12. Perhaps you've memorized this or you've received this in a card or meditated upon this text before. I think it speaks to Noah's sense and state of mind. And it addresses our condition as well when we think of Noah and the providence of God and his promises in time. Verse 12 of Proverbs 13 says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. You see, not many of us enjoy waiting. In fact, if I was probably to take a a poll in here, simply a straw poll in here, I imagine we would be at 100% in the room of people who don't like to wait. We've been dealing with some of that around our home lately. Purchases, orders, can't wait for them to show up on the door. I don't know that we could wait, some of us, an extra day for an Amazon package to arrive. Once you click add to cart and then you pay, you're looking out the window all the time. Is it here? 
Um, and, and then when it gets delayed, you see the update on the website, like, track my package. And you're just waiting. Oh, wait, no, it got stopped in New Jersey. Why? Why isn't it here? I can't wait. Let alone on serious matters, if light matters are any indication of our inability to wait for something to be delivered that we're hoping in. We're hoping on. We can't wait for. If small matters is any indication, such as an Amazon smiled boxed, then what say it of when we're waiting on a job? When we're waiting on x-rays, maybe it's for our parents. Waiting for information that is substantial to our lives. Waiting for an interview to come back. None of us like to wait. Now enter into that thought with Noah and join with me, and I'm just going to highlight the language that Moses lays out for us to appreciate Noah's waiting. It's far more, you see, than an Amazon package. His family has been shut up in the ark, and he's waiting. Verse 3, at the end of 150 days. Verse 6, at the end of 40 days. Verse 7, he sent forth a raven, and it went to and fro. Verse 8, then he sent a dove. Verse 9, but the dove found no place. She returned. Verse 10, he waited another seven days. Verse 12, he waited another seven days. You see, God remembered Noah and sent the wind to dry the ground. From verse 1 all the way through verse 12, Noah is still waiting before stepping out onto dry land. Even after 40 days of waiting, Noah had to yet still exercise patience to wait for God's deliverance. This is what we must learn from this text. I don't know what your particular set of circumstances are. We all have them. And I'm sure that right now in our lives, in a very real way, there are certain things, certain burdens that we bear that we wish we could just quench and have them taken off our plate. Have them dealt with today. There's some measure of hope that, that we have for the conclusion of something or, 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 or uh, to, to know more about something that would give us what we project to be greater clarity and peace of mind. And, and hope deferred. Not receiving it makes the heart sick in present circumstance. So also with Noah, as he was waiting with his family, you see, the picture of Noah and his family is one of a faithful remnant. We would refer to them as perhaps your own family, a little church. They have passed through the waters of judgment. They have found safety in the ark of the Lord. And they still must wait patiently 
upon him for final deliverance. You see, that is not unlike our situation still. The people of God in this age, having passed through the waters of judgment as a faith that rests and terminates upon Christ Jesus as our Savior, having found shelter in his ark of salvation. But there are days yet to be lived, difficulty yet to be faced, and patience is required for the road. I read for you a number of words from Moses' account telling the beautiful story of the narrative of the deluge and Noah's faith. You could calculate back and go over and read again how many different ways Noah's pen strikes to tell us patience, patience. And you have to ask, at least I have and I think you would as well, Why is Noah's patience so important to the telling of the story? He could have told the story a number of different ways. He could have left different details than the one he chose to leave. Why is patience so important, not ancillary, but integral to the telling of the story of Noah and his family? Well, think of it like an important family story of your own what scholars call the family unifying narrative. We all have them. Think about it just for a moment with me. Again, we're answering the question, why is Noah's patience so important to the telling of the story? Why must I know all of this, of his waiting and his hope being deferred for a long season of time with no instruction? Why is that important for me to know? As I said, think of it like an important family story that's been told for years. Maybe it's the patriarch of your family who tells it just the way you like to hear it. It's a repetitive story, but you adore hearing it. Maybe you're the star, I don't know. But even though you've heard this story dozens of times, you're still interested in hearing it again. Dad, tell that story about. And why? Why, why do you want to hear it told again? Why, why, why do you want a family story to be told again? An artifact of history. Why do you want this? And why is it so important to you as a person who belongs to this family to hear this story told yet another time? Why? And if we sit long enough and analyze why, why do we want these stories to be told? Why are they so powerful to us in the hearing? Because we know such a story isn't just entertainment. When your dad or your mom or whoever it is takes the mic of the family and begins to tell the story, well, it happened when you were only two years old and the story and the stage is starting to be set you know as a listener, it's more to you than entertaining. It's instructive. You see, such a story is certainly about the past. You sit and you cannot wait for it to be told because it did happen. You were there. Something about it. 
something about the scenario, something about the setting, something about your age. It really happened in our family's past. Dad, tell it again, because it's true and it happened. We were there. But each time it is told afresh, it affects the present. It changes you. And not only is it told each and every time the same way, yet it also has an effect in the present no matter where you're at in time. It even gestures to you about your future. A story told about when you were seven, told afresh, affects you in that moment yet again. And gestures to you about your future, of who you also in the future need to be. In other words, it tells you who you were. It tells you who you are. And it tells you who you need to be. You see, now pair that sense of identity affecting the present and gesturing toward the future with answering the question, why is Noah's patience so important for me to know? Because Moses is doing the same thing here as a family story. He tells and retells and tells again the moments of Noah's waiting. So that like an important family story, it will shape us. You see... The story of Noah's waiting at the end of 150 days, at the end of 40 days, he sent a raven. It returned. He sent a dove. The dove found no place. She returned. He waited another seven days. He waited another seven days. The telling and the retelling of the moments of Noah's waiting is not merely good biblical drama or entertainment. It is instructive. You see, it tells us this, and I have this for our closing. What's the impression of the story that it's supposed to have upon you? What is the instruction? That if you were to read each and every pause of the story, knowing how long Noah and his family waited for the deliverance of the Lord. Pass through judgment, yes. Are yet still asked to wait longer for final deliverance. It tells us or instructs us in that when we have things that trouble us. Maybe you have them now. Maybe they're deeper than you want to share. Maybe very few people know them. So how do you draw wisdom? What solace do you find? How does your heart find peace? Here, in the Noahic event, again, it tells us that when we have things that trouble us, circumstances that prove immovable. 
Noah gestures to what we are to do in the telling of Noah's waiting. We need to say alongside of Noah, as told to us through this narrative, as long as this is what God wants for me, I have to stay here without thinking I know better. That's the story of Noah's patience. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the many multiplex pieces that we receive from this text. Thank you for your commitment to attend our path with mercy, to meet our needs. I pray that we'll take seriously the Noahic account and draw the strength that we are intended to draw from it, that in times of waiting, we must be patient. I pray for the set of circumstances that are more particularized to each person in the audience, each person in the congregation, that whatever their particular set of circumstances, they too would turn to this text as a general rule and call for patience. That they would, as Noah has, cast themselves and their cares upon you, for you care for them, us. Give us the grace and the faith that's requisite for being able to exercise patience in our lives. Grant us your mercy in such an endeavor. And in all things, may Christ be praised. In his name we pray. Amen.